be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we've been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Aesuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is, where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, <clears throat> The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther pleading for his life. He saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will you also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. So we just um, pray for God's blessing on this word. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for uh, this book of Esther and uh, the amazing story that it is, but also so much teaching that we can take from it, Lord, that you've put it in the book of your living word, that it will give us life and spiritual teaching, Lord. So tonight, open our eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Spurgeon writes, although the name of God does not occur in the book of Esther, the Lord himself is there most conspicuously in every instant which it relates. I've seen portraits bearing the names of persons for whom they were intended, and they certainly needed them. But we have all seen others which required no name, because they were such striking likenesses that the moment you looked upon them, you knew them. Um, a writer says, he who observes his providence will never be long without a providence to observe. The man who can walk through the world and see no God is said upon inspired authority to be a fool. But the wise man's eyes are in his head, he sees with an inner sight and discovers God everywhere at work. It is his joy to perceive that the Lord is working according to his will in heaven and earth and in all deep places. So at this point in the narrative of Esther, prayer has been made for several days, seeking from God the deliverance of his people. And we read that in chapter 4. But on this particular day, the beginning of chapter 7, which probably began like any other for the rest of the population, dramatic events took place, all demonstrating God's watchfulness. In the Bible, his people are described as his vineyard, which he guards day and night so that no one may harm it. The radar was invented by a Scotsman, a man by the name of Robert Watson, Watson Watt. He was later knighted for his work in the military, and the invention of the radar was a wartime invention and he received as a reward some $140,000, which was the largest sum ever awarded for a wartime invention. Subsequently, when he was driving in Canada, he was caught for speeding in a radar trap, and acknowledging the irony of what was represented in that, he wrote a little verse about it, which goes like this. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot, and thus with others I could mention a victim of his own invention. 
But we see in this chapter, Haman, far more significant for him and devastating, is essentially caught and he's hung on his own gallows. So first of all, let's see the first thing I want to bring out. Esther shares her secret. So from the beginning of chapter 5, when she puts on her royal robes and goes in to see the king, from that moment we read that she found favour in the sight of the king. The book of Esther is full of providences, isn't it? The king can't sleep. He gets some books out. He reads them. He remembers Mordecai. Mordecai has a relation. Esther Esther gets promoted. But she goes for this beauty pageant. And there are lots of other virgins who go along to this beauty pageant as well. But she is the one who finds favour with the king. So they must, you know, the odds were stacked against this. But she finds favour. So the words of Solomon in Proverbs 25 with patience a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. And we see that with Esther here. What she's managed to do is she's cornered the king by getting him to acknowledge publicly on three separate occasions that he's going to give her what she wishes and that he's going to grant her her request. He said the first time, well, whatever you like, I'll give you. Then he changed his mind. She doesn't jump on that one. Even when he asks her the second time in the feast, she doesn't jump on that one. And she waits until we come back to this feast. And now here we go. She embodies the truth of Ecclesiastes. There's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. There's a lesson, isn't there, for us. Sometimes we can go blustering in the way we speak. But she's very, very careful here. And we see that God is at work when Esther works. But he's also at work when she isn't working. So he's behind the scenes as well. So she purposely uses the words of the edict, doesn't she? I'm asking for my life. I'm asking for the lives of my people. They're my people. You can imagine Ahasuerus looking at her and going, are you kidding? I've been married to a Jewish girl all this time and I never knew it. But now she reveals this big secret. He's probably thinking, you did a good job. You're good. And she says, we've been sold. I am my people. And she uses the language from the edict to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. We've been sold. So it's almost identical words. But she couldn't just simply appeal to the king on the basis of his sense and right and wrong, because we know exactly what Ahasuerus is like. He's not that type of guy, is he? You know, killing people like this, destroying, annihilating big groups of people, it's not a good idea. You know, genocide is wrong. She couldn't go with him with that argument, because it wouldn't work. He didn't believe it was wrong. He didn't care about it. Before we finish... Sorry. So he's, he is a bad man, and we know that from what we've learned so far. He's, really, he's only driven by one thing, and that is his own self-interest. So he uses that. She uses that. If it just involves slavery, if it just involved, I would have gone with it. But because it involves death and I'm your favourite queen, I don't think you want to lose me. So how does the king respond? Well, the king gets mad. Haman can hardly stand up. Haman has fallen before the queen. And that verb is important because that's the verb that his wife used at the end of the previous context. Remember when at the end of chapter 6, Zeresh and all his friends, he told them everything that had happened. And his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to them, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you have already begun to fall. And now he falls. So basically all the way through this book of Esther, there's irony everywhere. He was going to kill Mordecai because he wouldn't fall before him. And now he's the one falling before the queen, begging for his life. 
As I've said, we know what type of king Ahasuerus is. He's also referred to as Xerxes. He should have honoured. He should have honoured Vashti, the queen, in chapter one, because she wouldn't come into his party with his mates, and he, she wouldn't be paraded in front of his friends. But he does the opposite thing. He shows himself to be an unreasonable and foolish man, and he banishes this woman who is upright from his presence. Apparently, on one occasion, recorded in Jewish writings, Ahasuerus executed the builders of a bridge because an ocean storm destroyed it. Then he commanded that the water and waves be whipped and chained to punish the sea. So that just gives you this state of mind. Now, this same king leaves, probably seething with anger, probably going to kick a few rose bushes or punch some statuettes in the garden. You know what it's like with children. If they need to blow off some steam, or you yourself, sometimes you just need to get outside. It's a good, it's a good way, isn't it? You know, Get outside, blow off some steam. So that's what Ahasuerus does. He goes out into his palace garden. The king left the banquet to go into the palace garden. We don't really know the reasons. But the words translate the king had already decided his fate, that is Haman, are in the passive tense in the original. One version of the Bible translates these words as he saw that evil was determined against him by the king, which implies that the king was just the device. He was just the instrument and the initiative came from a higher source. It reminded me, looking at this, of Pharaoh, really. Often in the Old Testament you read, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the next verse is on, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you think, well, which is it? Pharaoh hardened his own heart or God hardened his heart? So you see, God works through all these things in his providence. The king's dilemma was real. To deal with Haman was straightforward, apart from the possible loss of face, but to rescind an irrevocable law was more difficult. This law that he'd passed. Well, really, it isn't that difficult because you just make a new law, but apparently it's quite difficult. The, the person now intent on annihilating a Jew who refused to bow down to him found himself bowing down to a Jewess pleading for mercy. So the final point, Haman is punished. He's about to discover the truth that Eliphaz conveys in Job chapter 5 when in responding to the circumstances of Job, he points out something that is true, namely that God catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. God catches the wise in their own craftiness. We often hear the, hear the saying, or we use the saying ourselves, you're too clever for your own good. Well, Haman was very crafty, but he was caught. Life has, in Job, goes on to say, these individuals meet with darkness in the daytime, and they grope at noon, noonday as in the night. So we read in this passage, they covered Haman's face. The judgment of God falls on Haman. And we know now that he's going to be hung on his own gallows. That's what Harbona says. He says, well, what about the gallows for Mordecai? For Mordecai, whose words saved the king. In other words, he's saying to the king, do you realise that Haman was going to kill the man who saved your life? And the king says, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. So this whole passage prompts a lesson doesn't it when God is at work for us who may guess what any day may bring forth of every day we may say this is the day that the Lord has made let us rejoice and be glad in it we may go on as in the next verse of the psalm and say oh Lord save us oh Lord grant us success so just a couple of applications as we finish we say this every week but it's worth repeating we recognise that God is at work in events over which let's just use Esther over which Esther has no control 
For example, the insomnia of the king, we've already mentioned that. She couldn't control the insomnia of the king, and yet the insomnia of the king is crucial in the development of the storyline. So God's at work in those things over which she has no control. And even when he does use us, success does not depend upon the agents nor upon what they do. A story is told of a cowboy who goes to buy some life insurance. The broker asks him if he'd had any accidents in the past year, to which the cowboy replied, no, but I was kicked by a horse, I was chased by a raging bull, and I was bitten by a snake. That laid me up for a while. The agent said, weren't they accidents? To which the stockman replied, no, they did it on purpose. (laughs) You see, this stockman realised that there's no such things as accidents. And in Esther, a lot of these events look as if they're accidents, but in God's hands, they are just providence. And the second and final point is God is in us all. Uh, Sorry, God is in us all. He is in us all, but Haman is in us all. The first sin must have been highness indeed, for the first sin cannot be identified with sensuality. So this is going back to the Garden of Eden and looking at the original sin. Augustine spoke of the first sin as originating in pride. John Calvin quotes Paul in concluding that the first sin is disobedience and considers this disobedience rooted in a disregard for God's word. The first sin sought to annihilate the glory of God, not trusting him and following his commands. Haman's pride is clear for all to see. So we shouldn't be surprised, it is really just original sin taken to the nth degree. It's the sin of pride. It was the same same sin that Pharaoh had, the same sin that Saul, the Apostle Paul had. And believe it or not, it was in Peter, wasn't it? Remember when Peter, Jesus said, you... I need to wash your feet, Peter. And Peter said, no, Lord, you're not washing my feet. Peter possibly didn't realise how important it was that Jesus washed and served him and was ultimately going to serve him by dying on the cross in his place. Haman's end was to hang. Now, hanging in those days probably wasn't hanging around the neck. It was hanging on a spike. It's often what the um, Persians used to do, put up a big spike, and then when the captives were dead, they just put them on top of the spike so that people could see them. And that's probably what happened here. 50 cubits, so 75 feet. And he was impaled on that spike. In the Psalms, we read, Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. So perhaps the greatest example of this was when Satan thought that he won by getting the crowd to crucify Jesus. But the cross turned out to be the instrument of his defeat. So the death of a substitute satisfied the wrath of the king. In the case of Mordecai and Haman, it was the guilty dying in the place of the innocent. In the case of us, it's Jesus dying, the innocent, in the place of us, the guilty. Some writer has said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the centre of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves on the town garbage heap at a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. At the kind of place where the cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that is where he died, and that is what he died about. So the Apostle Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ, just bringing us into the picture now, because Christ has been crucified in our place, but we too, because of union with Christ, we've been crucified with him. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.